Wow, look at this. This is fun. Look at this full sanctuary. I mean, it seems not too long ago where uh, I was standing in a room, this room by myself with Dan recording these videos for worship that you guys would be able to see just at home. And now we've got a sanctuary full of people worshiping together. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be together again. I don't know about you guys, but all right. <laughs> Well, if you would, uh, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, I'll have the scripture passages up on the screen too, but it might be good for you to thumb along in Acts chapter 19 together. Today we're wrapping up our sermon series, which has essentially taken us through the Gospel of Luke into the book of Acts. Last week, Pastor Jay, I mean, he just knocked it out of the park in his sermon. If you haven't heard it, one of the nice things that we've got available to us now that we've been doing this live streaming is it's kind of like, you know, when you get behind on your Netflix show or whatever you're watching, you can go back and binge watch all the previous sermons that you've missed, okay? So just do a binge of sermons, go back, listen to uh, Pastor Jay's sermon last week. I mean, he just, he knocked it out of the park. It was, it was awesome. So we're in Acts chapter 19. Now, I I have to confess, I think we can all confess this together, that sometimes reading the Bible is really, really difficult. There's a gulf between our current culture here in in America in, you know, 2021 and the world of ancient people living in the ancient Near East or in the Roman Empire. And so sometimes when we try to step back into the world of the scriptures, it feels a little foreign to us, it feels a little strange. In Acts chapter 19, there's some stuff that happens in Acts chapter 19 that feels kind of foreign to us, feels really strange to us. Um, It seems like something out of a totally different world. But one of the things I hope to help you see this morning is that, yes, that ancient world 2,000 years ago in which the book of Acts was composed, it was different, but it's actually a lot more similar than it is different to us. And some of these things might feel foreign on the surface, but when we maybe do a little work to kind of compare the past with the present, I think what we'll be able to see is it's really not all that different. In fact, this might help us see in some of our own blind spots. So here in the 21st century, We live in a time in which many philosophers have called and dubbed a secular age. This is a time in which, unlike any other period in human history, we think and see reality so differently than the way ancient people did. So, for example, let's say you go back 2,000 years, and you go back to the the world of the, the biblical authors here in the book of Acts, in the world that Luke's living in as he's writing this book. And you were to ask somebody a question that maybe feels like a really pressing, pertinent question to us today. You go and ask somebody, hey, do you believe in God? That's like a relevant question in our culture today. It would have been so strange and foreign to somebody living 2,000 years ago. Asking someone in the ancient world, do you believe in God, would have looked like you just felt like, just, like you just asked them, do you believe in trees or water or air? While you've already got your time machine up and running, we could even go back just 500 years and you could plop yourself anywhere in Europe and ask the same question to somebody on the streets, say, do you believe in God? 
And they would have probably given you like the same weird face. What do you mean, do you believe in God? Because everybody believed in God, God's spirits. It was an enchanted world. And it's only been over the last few years, a few hundred years, that we've experienced a shift in the way we see the world, especially here in the West. If any of you have ever done missionary work overseas, you know this, this question of do you believe in God or gods, anything like that still feels foreign to them, but to us it feels like a real, a real challenge to us. Everyone in the ancient world believed that the cosmos were an enchanted place. It was a magical place. It was filled with the activity of spirits and angels and demons, even a plurality of deities and gods especially back in the time in which the biblical authors were composing the scriptures, no one was asking the question, do you believe in God? It just wasn't on anyone's mind. Instead, a more relevant question would have been like, which gods do you follow? Or who do you think the chief God is that's the most powerful? And that sort of question seems really weird to us today. What gods do you follow? Which gods do you think are the most powerful? That's really, really strange, and that's some of the reason why when we step into a chapter like Acts 19, it just feels like a weird world to us. I mean, I think if some of us are honest, we can even come into church on a Sunday morning with questions about, like, is any of this real? Like, if we're honest, we bow our heads to pray in church, and we sometimes wonder, am I just talking to myself? We've all had those moments before, right? That's because we live in a very different age and era. This is the secular age we inhabit, and it's really, really strange. It's a strange way of thinking compared to the way people thought in the ancient world. We've kind of learned, even from a very young age, this is just all part of, whether you grew up in church or not, this is all kind of part of the cultural sea we are all swimming in. And it's taught us to split up our experiences of reality into two boxes, okay? So in one box, we've got what we might call our spiritual things, or we could say we've got the sacred, right? Did I spell that all right? Good, okay. And then the other box is what we could call the secular, this is not the way ancient people thought, but it's kind of the way we think. We kind of split up all of our experiences of the world into these two categories. You know, we, we, we struggle with, well, is this experience that I'm having right now in church, is it real or not? And that's because we put it in this category of spiritual things, of sacred things. So we might say something like prayer. We've been conditioned to believe that prayer is... A spiritual thing, it's a sacred thing. But like something like, say, doing science, that's a secular thing, right? Or we might say spiritual, sacred stuff, that's, you know, invisible. And the secular stuff, that's the, that's the visible stuff we can see. I'll give you one other example, and then I, I'm going to need you to talk back to me here. I grew up a charismatic and a Pentecostal, and I'm used to the congregation talking back and forth with me here a little bit, all right? <laughs> Thank you. Somebody's got it. Okay, so we might say, another thing we might say, right? We might say, we've got church, 
you know, church is a spiritual thing, it's a sacred thing, but then like politics, that's secular, okay? Someone tell me something else that you might think, in our culture right now, you can just shout it out, even if you're wrong, I won't make fun of you, okay? Something else that you feel like, yeah, I think in our culture, we think this is a spiritual thing. Somebody else have another, another thing they could throw up here on the board? What's a, what's a thing that we might say, yeah, that's spiritual, that's sacred? Just say it out if you have any ideas. What's something that gets treated as sacred or spiritual? Worship, Worship. yeah, what we're doing here, worship. All right, anybody else have another sacred or spiritual thing? It's okay, you can talk back to me in church. Preaching, yeah, I'm doing something spiritual right now, right? Boy, you know, you should see the looks we get. I'm sure Pastor Jay, Pastor Joel can attest when you first meet somebody new for the first time and what do they ask you? Hey, what do you do for work? And you tell them, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor. You know, it's like you're in some weird, weird thing, right? Okay, what about secular stuff? Stuff that's like, hey, this is, this is kind of the normal stuff people do. This is the secular stuff, the stuff you can see. It's visible, material. Someone throw out to me what might be an example of something that could be secular. Say again? Business. Oh, that's a great one, Ross. Business. Right? Business is secular. Anybody else have another one? School. School. Yeah, school. School's a great example because, you know, in many ways, we've our culture has really tried to make school a more secular place, right? So we want to strip it away of any sort of religious expression, those sorts of things. So here's the problem, right? We split the world up into these two boxes, and something's been happening over the last couple of hundreds of years. This is a long process. This isn't just like this year this has happened. But something has happened, and we could even go back to like the scientific revolution, the more that we learn about the material, I should probably put material up here too, because that might be helpful. When we think about the secular, we think about things we can see and taste and touch and feel. But prayer, we're talking to this invisible God, that's not material. What happened over the last couple hundred years is that the more we started to discover about the world through science, through people like Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein, people used to think long ago that God spiritually was holding, physically holding the stars into, into place and the planets were orbiting in this particular motion because God was doing it. And then Isaac Newton comes around and he's like, no, it's gravity. So we replace something that might have felt really, really spiritual with this like just kind of material process. And so what ends up happening is this box starts getting smaller and smaller, right? And then lo and behold, you know, more and more as time has progressed, this box feels really, really small compared to this one, doesn't it? Like once upon a time, and I'm not saying all this stuff is good, there's a lot of really bad superstitions that people used to believe. But you just need to understand the difference in the way we think. You know, it used to be that if uh, you lived in an ancient agrarian society, right, where you're pretty dependent on the weather, you would maybe go out as an ancient person and make sacrifices to some god or deity that you thought controlled the weather. 
And then you would ask them, please bless, bless us with rain to give us a good harvest. Or you'd go consult some mystical seer or prophet to tell you, is it going to flood this year? Is there going to be a drought? What do we have? A weather app. <laughs> it's not sacred or spiritual. It's like, well, am I going to have to wear a jacket when I drive to the grocery store today? That's a very different experience of the world. That sacred box seems smaller and smaller, and the secular feels much larger. In our secular age, religion, or maybe we like to call it spirituality, that's more the in vogue term, feels something like, you could kind of try this out, right? Like joining a CrossFit gym or taking golf lessons, you know? It's a, maybe a quaint hobby that you have in your private, personal life. But it's really hard because we are people that we long for enchantment. We long for there being something more than what's right in front of us. The uh, Christian philosopher over at Calvin University, James K.A. Smith, he accurately sums up the feeling of our cultural moment in his book, How Not to Be Secular Like This. He describes the prevailing feeling that we all have. It kind of runs in the background. The prevailing feeling where believers are beset by doubt and doubters every once in a while feel tempted to believe. Doesn't that describe the moment well? I mean, even some of us, let's be honest, like some of us who've been coming here for decades, you have your moments where you go, is, is, is any of this real? We feel tempted to doubt. Believers feel tempted to doubt. And doubters every once in a while, they go, maybe there's something more, but I don't know what to do with it. We have to confront something if we're really going to take what happens in Acts 19 and our scriptures and what we do here really, really seriously. We have to confront a myth about these separate boxes. And we have to kind of take apart this myth if we're really going to appreciate what's happening in the scriptures and have it really transform our lives. We have to critically interrogate this. Let's ask some serious questions and so that we don't just dismiss what we read today as something from some unenlightened, superstitious path. Here's the first question we really want to ask. Are there actually godless, neutral spaces in the world? Is that really true? Is this really, you know, this is supposed to be the neutral space, and this is the one tinged with religion and superstition and all of that stuff. Are there actually neutral spaces? And the next question we want to do to kind of interrogate this way that we all think is, is the thought of invisible forces that affect the destiny of human beings really just an ancient superstition? We need to confront those two questions and think through that more deeply. Okay, so it's Memorial Day weekend, right? Um, you might see some more American flags flying around. I drove over the 35W bridge this morning, a big old American flag hanging from a crane, right? Maybe you see more flags up in your neighborhood. I don't know. I live out in the burbs, so I see more of that than maybe you guys do in the city. All right, what would happen this morning if I brought up, I'm not going to do this, you know, Pastor Joel would come back from sabbatical real quick if I did this, but let's say this morning I had an American flag. It's Memorial Day weekend, right? And what do you think the response would be if this sanctuary was filled with blue-blooded, Midwestern, good old patriotic Americans, and I took that American flag and I lit it on fire. What kind of response? You know, some of you are getting squirmy right now, even as I say that. 
boy, that would be really offensive to a lot of people. That would really, really bother a lot of people. But what if instead of doing that with an American flag, I just happened to have like a, a t-shirt, just a random t-shirt that just so happened to have like the colors of blue and red and white on it. What if I lit that on fire? Would people be as offended? No, I mean, they might go, it's kind of weird, why is this pastor up here lighting stuff on fire? <laughs> but I don't think they're going to be offended by that. Why? Why, are, why would people feel, this? they're both just pieces of cloth, right? Pieces of cloth with the same colors on it. Why would people feel so outraged if you burn an American flag and if you burned a red, white, and blue t-shirt, you might be like, this guy's weird, but I'm not offended by it. What's going on? Well, the question that we want to wrestle with is not what the material thing is. It's what is behind that flag? What does it represent? And this is one of the ways we can interrogate this, this sense that we have that there's no invisible forces guiding our life. Okay, is the American flag the same thing as a t-shirt that just so happens to have red, white, and blue on it? Is it? It's not. It's not the same thing in our culture. It's not just a physical thing. When I start talking like that and I ask you, okay, is an American flag feel secular or sacred to people? And you go, ooh. I don't know, right? To some people, it feels really, really spiritual and sacred. If it didn't, you'd have no problem with someone lighting it on fire, right? That's not just a secular thing. We're getting into something in our culture that kind of blurs the lines, doesn't it? Because what does, in our culture, what does that American flag represent? Talk to me here. Someone give me some things. What does the American flag represent that people feel like so strongly about? Would be Sacrifice, that is a good word. Someone else. Freedom, oh yeah. We like that word in America, don't we? We like freedom. Now, is freedom a secular thing? Is it a spiritual thing? Is it, can you see freedom? Can you measure freedom in a laboratory? Hmm, is it material? Or are we now getting into the world of invisible stuff? Maybe we're not as secular as we think. Maybe this is a myth. Freedom, that sounds a lot like an invisible force that drives us. Freedom is not an inherently visible material thing. It's an invisible value, say, similar to something like beauty or wisdom. Now we're starting to understand a little bit more of the world like ancient people did. Here's a picture of one of the most famous gods of the Greco-Roman world, the world that the New Testament authors are living in. And this is the goddess Athena. And Athena is the patron goddess of Athens. Athens outside of Rome is probably the most important city in all of the ancient world. Athena is the patron god, goddess of, of the city of Athens, and she represents wisdom. So what did the people of Athens really, really value? Did they value the statue? Well, yeah, kind of like we value the flag. What did they really value? 
They valued wisdom. That's why it was the center of philosophy in the ancient world. Now tell me, what do you think would happen if you stepped back into a time machine, all right? You got in with Marty McFly and you went back 2,000, 3,000 years even, and you marched yourself right atop the Acropolis where the temple to Athena was. It's called the Parthenon. Anybody ever visited Greece before? Has anybody ever seen it in person? Awesome. It's a magnificent. I mean, the ruins are, itself are magnificent. Magnificent. So let's say you marched yourself right up to the top and you went in and you tore down the statue of Athena or you set fire to the Parthenon. What kind of response do you think you would get from the people of Athens? I mean, it might be pretty similar to what you would get if like on a 4th of July or Memorial Day celebration, someone started setting fire to an American flag. Maybe they're just as upset because it's not the material thing that they're upset about. It's that that material thing, that symbol, represents something. We could say it's a god. We might not feel comfortable calling these things gods, but it was a god to them, and it seems we have certain things in our culture that are really, really valuable too. So maybe it might be helpful to kind of move away from seeing things in these split boxes and maybe rethink how all of this stuff works together. I put together a visualization for you that I think hopefully might be more helpful to help you see how everything is integrated together. I have something like this similar in my office and it kind of helps remind me that my behaviors the visible behaviors of my life and the symbols that I cherish and value aren't just material secular things. They're not. Those things, the behaviors of my life, the symbols that I create, that I cherish, whether it's a cross, whether it's a picture of Jesus, whatever it might be, it shows me the invisible values that I cling to. And those invisible values show me the story that I believe about reality. And what sits atop all of that are the God or gods that we really follow in our life. So this question about, well, what do you believe about God? Do you believe in God? You can say yes to that question, right? Do you believe in God? And you can say, well, yes, I do. But the real question is, how are you living? What is the fruit of your life? What are the symbols that you cherish? Because that shows me your values. And your values show me the story that you believe about reality and your place in it. It shows me what you really believe God is like. And it shows me who the real gods are that you follow. These visible behaviors of our day-to-day life, they are tangible symbols. The tangible symbols we create and cherish, they are manifestations of these values. If you want to know what functionally operates as the God of someone's story, the God of their values, then you look at the symbols they value. You look at the fruit of their life. And then it's when you start seeing how all this is interconnected, you can start seeing how these boxes are... eh, they're a little bit blurry. I'll give you one other example. How, do you, how many of you were following this? Back in January, this crazy thing happened in the stock market. Any of you hear this like, GameStop thing that happened? 
in the stock market, right? So GameStop is kind of like a dying used video game store. And then suddenly in January, it went from $19 a share to nearly $150 a share almost overnight. So that means if you put $1,000 into GameStop at 19 bucks a share, you could have sold it at its highest point for over $18,000 a share. I missed that one, <laughs> Hopefully some of you got in on that. I missed that one. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about this because as I start talking about the stock market, you start going, well, that's secular stuff, right? It doesn't fit in church, but let's think again about this. So when this is happening, some of the big investment firms, people in Washington, D.C., they're starting to get freaked out because this sort of action in the market, it, it, it could really destabilize the entire market system. And so it was really starting to be seen as a threat is this actually the beginning of some sort of financial revolution? And so those in power, they got together and they said, hey, we've got to do something about this. We have to make sure that this revolutionary activity doesn't get too revolutionary. So what did they do to make sure that this revolutionary action didn't get too revolutionary? What important step did those in political and financial power take? Take a look here. They sent armed guards to protect the Wall Street bull. I thought that was secular. What do we need armed guards protecting the bull for? In fact, this is the tweet that actually came out from the New York Counterterrorism Department. Secular, right? Secular, right? The stock market is an interesting week, to say the least. We are happy to report that the Wall Street charging bull is secure and continues to preside over Bowling Green for the foreseeable future. Now that's a really weird thing to say if you're just secular, right? Why are we protecting a statue? Why do they care so much? And why would they be rightly concerned that if some financial revolution was taking place that someone might seek to deface or destroy that thing? It's because we're not secular. <laughs> this is a myth, right? Preside over Bowling Green? What's the root word there? What does preside mean? To be in a position of authority in a meeting or a gathering, a.k.a. we see this thing as at least some way, shape, or form as a god. And this thing, I know it's just a statue, but it's kind of not because we're sending armed guards to protect it. It represents something really, really important, at least to some people. Don't tell me these secular spaces are free of belief about gods and spirits when we literally have idols that we revere in our supposedly godless spaces that are, guys, this one's like almost straight up identical to the ancient gods. I mean, I know we keep getting told, well, no, that's just secular. And you go, well, hang on a second. So right there, there's the charging bull. There's, there's Molech. I'm sorry, that's Baal in the middle. The one on the end there is Molech. Ancient gods, the Israelites, were frequently tempted to worship. Now, we might call it different things. I know we're not bringing any children into the hands of the Wall Street charging bull, but we really need to critically interrogate this myth that this is just secular stuff. There's no such thing as truly secular. There's no godless, religionless vacuums. We all serve, whether we want to admit it, no matter what... We all serve invisible forces, 
And we might not like to call them gods or spirits or anything like that. Maybe some might just like to call it psychological forces. Cool. I won't talk you out of that. But just admit, it's still invisible. (laughs) You can't see it. I'm telling you, no matter what you call it, we're not that different from ancient people. So I wanted to do the setup work, and we won't take as much time with Acts 19, because I want you to see that we're not that different from the people living in this time in Ephesus. So let's open up to Acts 19. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open there. I'm going to give you just a little brief overview before we zero in on verses 11 to 28 today. So Acts 19 started with Paul going into Ephesus. He meets some disciples who had only heard of the baptism of repentance, but not the baptism of the Spirit. He lays hands on them. They receive the Spirit, begin speaking in tongues, prophesying. Verses 8 through 10, Paul then is preaching in some Jewish synagogues for about three months. At the end of the three months, the people are like, yeah, we're not convinced. So Paul goes, well, all right, I'm going to take this message elsewhere. He moves over to the philosophy hall, and he starts giving philosophy lectures, and he does that for about two years. Okay, so that gives you the context leading up to verse 11. Let's read this together. If you don't have your Bibles, for those that are watching online, it'll also be on the screen here for you. Let's read this together, okay? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, left them, evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Oh gosh, this is getting weird already. (laughs) And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's a lot of magic happening in this section, isn't there? This is such a wild picture. Like, we can sometimes, when I was a kid and I learned about the Apostle Paul, I kind of sometimes pictured him like Billy Graham, you know, traveling evangelist, or, you know, we actually saw him in Acts 19. He's given lectures also. So maybe he's more like a philosophy professor, but I think the people of Ephesus are seeing this guy who's operating in the power of God, and they're so wigged out by the power of Jesus that they are burning their magic scrolls in front of him. I bet they actually see Paul a little bit more like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, more than Billy Graham. Like, he's wise, he's powerful, and then it suddenly dawns on them, if you kind of track with my Lord of the Rings metaphor here, some, some of them, it dawned on them, oh man, I think we've been practicing the magic of Sauron instead, and they show up and they start burning a lot of money's worth of magic sorcery scrolls. This brings us to our first take, 
take-home point. In a battle of the gods, Jesus claims to be Lord over all. The response of the people there was an appropriate response. They saw that the exclusive claims of Jesus as Lord meant they couldn't keep practicing magic anymore. And they decided, we're going to have to burn these things. These things are not in harmony with the way of Jesus. Let's jump ahead to verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. we got to give this Demetrius guy a little bit of credit here. He understood what this Jesus of Lord stuff is all about. He understood that the Christians, what these Christians, these followers of the way were proclaiming, he understood what they meant, not only for his business, but for their entire culture and civilization in Ephesus. Demetrius did not see boxes. He understood this. I'm not making him into a hero here, but we at least have to recognize Demetrius, just like pretty much everybody in the ancient world, didn't see a box separating these dimensions of life. He realized, boy, this following Jesus thing, it's going to cost us something. I'm an idol maker. I can't keep making idols if people don't want to buy them. And what about this temple that we have to Artemis? Artemis was one of the Olympian gods of the Greek myths. She was Zeus's favorite daughter and the goddess of purity, hunting, wild animals, and the moon. She is the patron goddess of Ephesus, and there is a massive temple dedicated to her worship in the heart of the city. You can see it up here. It's actually a beautiful, magnificent place. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it was largely considered at the time to be the most decadent of all of the seven wonders of the world. It took them, it took people 120 years to build this temple. That's insane, right? I don't, we don't even make buildings that last 120 years anymore, much less take 120 years to build them. This was a big deal. And Demetrius saw, if Jesus is Lord, I don't think Artemis can be Lord anymore. Now, we have no evidence from the scripture text or for Christians in the first couple centuries of church history, we have no evidence that these followers of the way were going around and telling people, hey, we're going to burn the temple to the ground and all of your idols with it. That's not the way they engaged with culture. But Demetrius could see the long-term implications of this message that Jesus is Lord. If Paul is saying the gods made with human hands aren't gods, 
and more people start believing this, this is not only going to put him out of business, but it's going to destabilize a lot of things in their culture. Demetrius rightly understood that this Jesus that Paul was preaching about didn't just want to be your personal Lord and Savior. How, how that ever crept into our vocabulary, I don't know. I think it has something to do with this. Did you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior in that private dimension of your life, which probably has no connection to anything else you do in the world? Now, that's not really what people meant when they say it. I don't want to bash the phrase, but it's not a very good phrase. Jesus doesn't come to be personal Lord and Savior. Jesus comes to be Lord over all. <laughs> Demetrius saw this. God doesn't require all of humanity, though, to sing. Pastor Jay brought this up last week. In this claim that Jesus is Lord, God doesn't require all of humanity to just sing one single note or melody together. There's room for diverse and beautiful harmonies to be sung or played, for cultural differences to happen. But make no mistake about it, this is the flip side of the coin. God will not let other gods be the conductor of the song of your life. That's not going to fly. We can sing in harmony. There's diversity of expression. We worship here in a unique way. We got a church of God in Christ church down the road, and I promise you, the music sounds different <laughs> there than it does sound here. That's fine. There's room for cultural variance. We don't have to make everybody middle-class white people. That's not the message that Jesus is Lord, right? There's room for diversity, but we have to be, we have to be clear about this. That tolerance for different harmonies and different songs to act together in harmony does not allow us to go and be like, yeah, I'm just going to follow a different conductor and a totally different song. That's not how this thing works. And it's actually not for our good. The other songs are worse. So here's some reflection questions I want to get you thinking about today. You have some room in your bulletins to maybe <clears throat> jot some ideas down here and to reflect on this. First question I want to ask you is this. What are some of the modern gods of our culture that might be threatened by the lordship of Jesus? Think about it. We might go, well, no, 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 I think this is good, but now we need to start thinking about some of these areas that we go, well, that, that was all right over there. We can let someone else run that. Maybe it's that old God of greed. We don't like to come face to face with that God in our culture. Just ask, just ask those armed guards in front of the Wall Street bull. Maybe our allegiance to Jesus might threaten some things about the way we do business in the world. Maybe it's not in harmony with the way of Jesus. What if we have an allegiance to the political idol of the elephant or the donkey? I'm telling you guys, Jesus wants to be Lord over that too. What if it's our nationalistic idols that conflate our national culture with the kingdom of God and even have the audacity to claim things? And I've seen people claim that, that our culture, that America is the last best hope for the world. America's not the last best hope for the world. That's the kingdom of God. That's a hard thing for us to see. And I love America. When we have 4th of July, we're going to do fireworks and all of that stuff. I'm not a communist. Don't worry. <laughs> we're not talking about, uh, is our culture bad or evil or wicked? But when we elevate it to the status of God, 
there's a real problem. Some of you that have been, you know, I see, Doug, you've lived in Japan. You and, you and Cheryl lived in Japan for a long time. You come here back to America, and you're like, I think Americans see some things about the kingdom of God that are a little bit different. And we have to come face to face with that stuff. Maybe it's our hyper-individualism. The thing that crops us in, a, up in us, the sense of self-righteousness that manifests itself in endless work with no room for rest or genuine Sabbath ever. If we can't take one day off a week from working, I think we have a problem. It's something we don't see as a problem in our culture. But Jesus is Lord. Your job, what you guys do for work, isn't secular. I don't have a sacred vocation because I'm a pastor and you have a secular one. God has called you all to sacred work. You can be a plumber and do sacred work. You can be in finance and do sacred work. You can be a stay-at-home mom. Your work is sacred. It is not secular. There's not actually Christian music and secular music. There's music that's in harmony with the way of Jesus, and there's music that's dissonant. So the primary thing we come to do when we gather together each week is to tune up and to make sure that we're in harmony with the way of Jesus. Because throughout our week, we might be surrounded by various idols. And for whatever reason, that temptation to follow idols can feel so strong. And the worship team can come back up now. Because we need to actually tune our hearts to sing his praise. Throughout our week, there's so many competing messages, so many competing idols that call for our attention. We gather together as the people of God to be reoriented around a true story, the true story that Jesus is Lord. This is the good news. It is the true story of the world, and we come to sing it to pray it, to be in fellowship with others that are trying to follow this story, to be filled by his spirit. So we need all of these practices that we do when we come together. We need the scriptures. We need the practices of worship. We need communion. We need art. We need to go out on mission together. We need all of this to be reoriented around the true story of the world, the story that proclaims that Christ is risen and king. Let's pray. I'm gonna go ahead and invite you to stand as we pray this morning, and then we're gonna sing together a song that reminds us that Christ is king. Father, I thank you for this good news. This is good news, that you've come to set the world right, that you've come to bring us into union, into harmony with the song of creation. And we pray that we would be people that can hear your song and that we would sing it and play it with our lives. And we just pray that you would break down any lies or deceptions that we might believe, gods and idols that we might follow so that we can follow you as Lord in your name, Jesus. Amen.